Hello and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a look at the modern rock charts one month at a time. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and today we're going to be doing a special bonus episode all about Seattle 1992. Here helping me out today is Ron Nine, a witness and participant in the rise of Seattle music during this time period. Hi, Ron. How are you? Hi, Will. I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thanks for asking me. Somewhat recently, you were in a band called Down With People and a band called Vaporland. Yeah. But back in the era we're talking about here, you were the lead singer of a band called Love Battery. Yeah, that was uh, a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is a Seattle band. Are you a Seattle native? Yeah, I, I grew up in the Burbs and... Uh, I've been living in Seattle since then, so pretty much all my adult life. Before you were in Love Battery, you had a band called Room 9, and I listened to a few songs by this band. To me, it seems like they've got a very British 80s sort of vibe, like they'd fit in really well with Psychedelic Furs or some Cure. It definitely does not sound like what we typically think of when we think grunge, but when we get to the late 80s and you form Love Battery... It's definitely more of a guitar-based sound and, and starts moving in that grunge direction. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was really influenced by my friends' bands. So there was a craving on my part to go out and do something harder, a little more edgy. And I get into the recording process and the technology, but I never was a big keyboard guy. And so I just stuck to the guitars I think I really found my voice in Love Battery. With Room 9, I was still learning how to write songs and kind of stumbling my way through. But with Love Battery, things just came together. Yeah. So Love Battery was formed in 1989, and presumably this band was named after the Buzzcock song. Is that right? Yeah. Originally, I think we actually did a song, or I mean a show, as Battery Acid. But by that time, Scratch Acid was pretty big and we we had to change it and so the next show we were love battery and then it we never changed it <laughs> you know were you a buzzcocks fan because oh yeah I, you know i don't hear much buzzcocks in your music but it's also hard not to be a buzzcocks fan so <laughs> yeah oh yeah i think they were the kings of punk pop they single-handedly started the whole indie revolution they they were like the first band in England to put out a record themselves. Right. Spiral Scratch EP. Yeah. But they really had this amazing writing skill that was still had that punk edge. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, before we start listening to the modern rock charts, let's listen to some Love Battery. We're going to be hearing a song called Between the Eyes. This was Love Battery's first single, originally released in 1989. Ron, can you tell me a little bit about this song? This song was our first sub-pop single, Between the Eyes. And at the time, I was working at Muzak, and Bruce Pavitt came up to me. He goes, hey, if you record a song, I'll release it, a single on sub-pop. And I go, hell yeah. And uh, that just pushed me to get a band together to record a song. I had actually written about five songs before Room 9 disintegrated, and... Uh, this was one of the first songs that I wrote. I got together with Jason Finn on drums, and then through Jason I met the rest of the band, and they happened to live a block away from me. And every Saturday I would roll my amp down the street, and uh, and we would jam. When I played with those guys, I just was like, yeah, these guys get everything I'm trying to do. And I know from talking to them, they felt the same way. We were all on the same wavelength. And Between the Eyes is one of those things that happen in the moment, that arrangement, you know, with the vibrato guitar where uh, it just came together. Yeah. And I remember recording this song, Jack and Dino, and, you know, we started out with the vibrato guitar. He goes, well, why don't you, just for the sake of recording, don't use it. And I like, we're going, oh, Jack, you know, we play this song live. We'll get it. And so it was like the second or third take, we got the instrumentals down. And uh, I just remember feeling it in the studio going, oh, this is something, this is something cool. 
Well, let's go ahead and listen to it. This is Between the Eyes, like you said, released as Love Battery's debut single on Sub Pop in 1989. And among other claims to fame, it was ranked as the 36th best grunge song of all time by Paste Magazine. Here it is. That's a pretty cool song. I like that one a lot. Thank you. You know, we actually got incredible local press when we put that out. And uh, it was a really good feeling after kind of feeling like uh, I was drowning in obscurity to kind of feel like we were making a mark, at least locally. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm fascinated by this song because Between the Eyes to me feels ahead of its time. Like it feels like what you might call grunge music, but it also has a pop sensibility that I think a lot of these other bands didn't develop for at least another couple years. Yeah. And maybe other than like Nirvana, about a girl you could say was kind of like that. It's it's a pop song, but still grunge, but that I don't believe was released as a single. And Love Buzz was, but it is also a cover song. It's not yeah. an original. So Between the Eyes feels like prescient to me at the very least, and I think probably deserving of more recognition than it's received. Well, thank you. I've always been really proud of that one. So I would love for it to get more exposure. It's interesting, the the movie Hype, the director was telling mm-hmm. me that uh, he used Between the Eyes as like a shift in the narrative of the movie. And uh, we're the only band that he actually used the studio version of the song for because he said it was important as a point in the movie where all of a sudden this local scene becomes an international craze. And uh, yeah, so that's cool that, you know, there's a lot of people who, dig that song that I really respect and like I said I, I'm really proud of that one and as well as the album uh, Day Glow. Yeah, alright great. So the first modern rock charting band we're going to hear from this episode is called Temple of the Dog, but before we can actually talk about that band, there's a couple other bands that we need to talk about. So the first band we need to talk about is Soundgarden. I don't want to spend too long talking about this band right now. They're eventually going to land 12 songs on the modern rock charts, and we're going to have plenty of opportunities to talk about them in future episodes. What we do need to know for the context of talking about Temple of the Dog is that Soundgarden was led by singer Chris Cornell and included drummer Matt Cameron. In 1991, Soundgarden released their third album called Bad Motor Finger, and it spawned three singles which did not chart on the modern rock charts, much to my surprise, although I think all three of them have become grunge classics at this point. Those songs are Jesus Christ Pose, Outshined, and the one we're going to listen to right now, Rusty Cage. That's a cool song. It has an unusual sound to it, and there's a few reasons for that. First of all, the song was written in a drop B tuning on the guitar, which is a pretty unusual tuning. And second of all, we couldn't hear all of it because we only heard a clip here, but if you listen to the full song, the time signature is kind of all over the place. It it changes from a 4-4 into kind of this wacky shifting time signature toward the end of the song, which is pretty cool. You know, it's interesting, actually, about the timing thing, 
because especially Soundgarden on uh, Super Unknown and the one after that, uh, they have a lot of really interesting time signatures. And I know by that time, well, Chris was always messing around with open tunings on the guitar. Right. But that makes for a very unique sound in, in the rock spectrum, you know. A lot of the bands you'd see on MTV just would use standard tuning and wouldn't really experiment with that. But, uh, yeah, that was something that became almost a, a regular thing, especially with Soundgarden. If you listen to those later records, and I know that uh, I what, we actually shared a rehearsal space with those guys. This was back when they had just released uh, "Louder Than Love," and uh, and I remember looking at their set list, and that there was all these markings next to the songs. And I once asked Kim, "What's what's up with all these markings next to the set list?" and uh, he goes, oh, that's like Chris's uh, signal to change guitars because each guitar was tuned to a different open tuning. Oh, nice. And uh, I know that I've seen pictures of Chris playing solo, and he's got like five or six guitars behind him, and I know that each one of those is probably a different tuning depending on the song. Yeah, that's that's cool. You know, another thing that's really striking to me about this song, and actually about this whole album, Bad Motorfinger, is that it's a huge step up for the band, not just in terms of songwriting, but in terms of creativity and in terms of just the whole sound. This is clearly a band that's really working hard to take it to the next level, and it shows. Obviously, Chris was one of those people who was incredibly driven, and I think, like, looking for much more than a local or even a grassroots following, you know, they wanted to be rock stars, but honestly, who didn't, you know, who do, who doesn't want to be the Beatles if they could? Right. And uh, so I sure can't slight them for it, because ultimately, that's what got me going, even though the whole sub pop thing when it started out was like I said, just taking off in a van, sleeping on people's floors and playing every night was just the dream for me. I know that Soundgarden did their share of that too quite early on, I think behind their SST record. But uh by Bad Motor Finger, you know, again they were like playing with guns and roses and stuff, so it was obviously working. I should mention as a side note Rusty Cage in 1996 was covered by Johnny Cash for his Unchained album, and Johnny Cash was nominated for a Grammy for his performance of that song. And to kind of tie things up nicely, eventually when Chris Cornell was touring acoustically in 2015, he included Rusty Cage in a set list using Johnny Cash's country rock arrangement. I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. All right, the second band we're going to be talking about in order to set some context for Temple of the Dog is called Mother Love Bone. Mother Love Bone were an alternative metal band formed in 1988 and led by charismatic singer Andrew Wood. Today, I think they're probably best remembered because... Two of the band members, Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard, later went on to join Pearl Jam. But Mother Love Bone was actually incredibly influential on the Seattle music scene. And lead singer Andrew Wood played a big part in that. I can't help but think of uh, Andrew Wood when I hear anything off of Temple of the Dog. You know, Andrew, like I said, you know, we all had that craving within us and Obviously, Andrew did too, and he tried to fill it with many things, uh, you know, not just music. So, like I said, he was a real anomaly in in the Seattle scene in that he kind of had a real glam image. You know, when he uh, would perform in uh, in Malfunction, he used to wear white face. He played bass at the same time too. He was a great bass player. You know, when he uh, joined Mother Lubbo and I was surprised that he was just went out front, but uh, he obviously did a great job. Yeah. 
You know, speaking of 1992, at the time I was uh, living with Bruce Fairweather, who was the guitarist in Mother Love Bone and Green River before that. They had a big apartment and they'd rent out the extra room. And at the time, my ex-wife went to school in New York. So I moved in with those guys. And as a result, you know, I'd always known Stone and Jeff and the guys from Green River just because I'd seen them at shows and parties. Yeah. But when I moved in with Bruce, all of a sudden, you know, they would have band functions at his apartment. And, uh, you know, I remember one time uh, they were celebrating Andy's birthday. Andy was a really sweet man. You know, I, I've always felt this kind of special affinity towards him because he was such a nice guy. Yeah. And uh, before that malfunction, I got to say, Malfunction was just a really cool band because, you know, at the time everybody was sounding more heavy and everything. But uh, Malfunction, they they actually reminded me of T Rex with like Jimi Hendrix on guitar. Kevin Wood, Andy's brother, was just a a monster on guitar back then compared to everybody else. You know. Yeah, well, we're not going to listen to a Malfunction song, unfortunately, but we are going to listen to a Mother Love Bone song. The song we're going to hear is called Star Dog Champion. This song, while originally released in 1990, got a re-release in 1992 after it was included on a compilation album called Mother Love Bone. Here it is, Star Dog Champion. I would imagine this is a story that most listeners know, but in March 1990, just a few months before the release of Mother Love Bone's debut album, Andy Wood died of a heroin overdose at the age of 24. Mm-hmm. You know, this was obviously not the first rock and roll death by heroin overdose, but to me it feels significant because before the decade was out, Heroin overdoses led to the untimely deaths of so many musicians, members of Hole, The Wonder Stuff, Sublime, Smashing Pumpkins, Mad Season, Blues Traveler, just way too many people. And Mm -hmm. we could even, I think, count Kurt Cobain as a heroin victim, at least to some extent. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's it's very sad, and it's hard to wrap my head around, really. Like, was there something special about Seattle that heroin was the thing? Was it just readily available? You know, I, I think it was, <laughs> especially back then, it was kind of a gloomy city. You know, it was really industrial, and, uh, you know, we had the port here. I think it's one of the largest ports on the West Coast, And uh, I think, you know, a lot of the heroin would come up from Mexico, up I-5. I had this theory that a lot of us were looking for something to fill that vacancy inside, that hole, that void. And at that point, when Andy died, from what I understand, he had been clean for a long time, and then he went out and did it once again. And, you know, when you've been off of it for a while, then you become more affected by it. And he probably took a dose that he was used to taking back in the day. And you get uh, any drug off the street and the uh, quality differs wildly from one day to the next. And you just don't know it. Sometimes you're getting stuff that uh, can kill you. And then sometimes you're getting stuff that you don't feel a damn thing. So it's just Russian roulette almost when you're intravenously using drugs. Sure, yeah. Andy had been roommates with Chris Cornell, the Soundgarden frontman, at some point. Uh-huh. And from what I understand, after hearing about Andy's death, Chris Cornell wrote a few songs in his memory and decided to put a band together, strictly with the intention of doing, you know, a tribute album 
in Andy Wood's memory, and it was just going to be a one-off and no pressure kind of deal. So the band mm-hmm. was called Temple of the Dog. Chris Cornell recruited Soundgarden's drummer Matt Cameron and pulled in some Mother Love Bone members, Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard and Stone's childhood friend Mike McCready. So two-fifths of this band was from Soundgarden, and the other three-fifths at this time had teamed up to form a new band called Mookie Blaylock, which would soon change its name to Pearl Jam. So, you know, it's like a supergroup before we even knew it was a supergroup, in a sense. And then while they were recording this album, Temple of the Dog, this guy, Eddie Vedder, shows up from San Diego and... You know, I can't confirm this, but I've read that like the day he showed up to audition for Mookie Blaylock, he stops by the studio where Temple of the Dog is recording Hunger Strike, and Chris Cornell is maybe struggling to sing some of the lower register notes, and Eddie Vedder steps in and lends his vocals, and that becomes his first professionally recorded vocal track to see public release. Yeah, from what I understand... Um those guys had uh, put out an ad or something. I think it was Stone Gossard who got Eddie's audition tape. Mm-hmm. And they had already been quite impressed by his audition tape, therefore him coming up. But uh, I haven't heard that story, but, you know, it rings of truth. And uh, that guy is an amazing singer. He has this incredible low range and uh i'm thinking him and mark lanigan and and lane Mm -hmm. staley kind of have that yeah growly voice that kind of became the uh the masthead of of grunge yeah and i mean i guess i'll just add too like these guys all seem to have something in their voices that really cut (laughs) like they draw out those emotions and you you know you feel you feel what they're singing yeah and again, of course, Kurt Cobain's voice. Of course. He made it sound like he was in agony a lot of times mm-hmm. for a lot of those songs. Yeah. And I think people could relate to that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Temple of the Dog, the album was released in April 1991, and it sold fairly poorly, but that was probably about what was expected. And that was that until the summer of 1992. When, uh, at this point, Nirvana had exploded, Pearl Jam's first album was picking up steam. That was kind of a slow burn. It was not right out of the gates like Nevermind was. Yeah. Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger was doing well. And so there's this big spotlight on the Seattle music scene, and that's when A&M Records realized that they, in fact, had a Soundgarden Pearl Jam supergroup album on their hands that was already done and ready to promote. So uh, they decided to put their weight behind Hunger Strike, and that's what we're going to hear. Hunger Strike hit number seven on the modern rock charts in April of 1992. Here we go. We're going to listen to it. Hunger Strike. And the bomb You know, I've grown to appreciate stuff as it went on. You know, at the time, I was like into Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., the Pixies, and uh, I thought it was a lot more mainstream. But, you know, as I I look back on it, it, it's got a lot of emotion in there and a lot of yearning. That's kind of like the Seattle thing is this yearning, this unfulfilled need for something that we just don't know what it is, right? Mm-hmm. I'd rather be any place but here, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's kind of ironic that uh, I was looking at the lyrics, I stealing bread from the mouth of decadence and so forth. And then next thing you know, all these Seattle bands are like millionaires, you know? Right. Yeah. But, you know, I think it was definitely Chris's grieving for Andy you know they were close Mm -hmm. and uh, I believe they even both came from 
up north, one of the islands in the Puget Sound. So they'd known each other a long time. And uh, back then, in our 20s, when we lose a close friend, it hurts quite a bit, especially as unexpectedly as a heroin overdose. So I hear a lot of grieving in that song now, you know? Yeah. One thing that stands out to me with the song, it doesn't seem like Chris Cornell or Eddie Vedder are fighting for attention here. It doesn't seem like there's any showboating or big ego or anything. It just seems like two guys that are collaborating and not letting egos get in the way. And I really appreciate that about the song. Yeah. I also know I've talked to quite a few people about this song who who were kind of just getting into music at this time. And for them, the music video was a really big deal. You know, Chris Cornell comes on and they're like, whoa, who is this guy? Like, what? his voice is cool. He looks cool. Yeah. And then Eddie Vedder shows up and they're like, who is this guy? And it <laughs> kind of kick-started an interest in this music for them. Yeah. Well, and and they shot that video at a local park. You know, I remember seeing the video on MTV and going, oh, you know, I've been there. I used to... <laughs> Go, you know, uh-huh. smoke weed on the cliffs <laughs> at night and look out at the uh, the freight ships coming in and out of Seattle. Yeah, that's neat. But we can't see you in the background, I'm guessing. <laughs> You're not no. still out there <laughs> no. hiding. No. <laughs> the impression I get from like the outsider perspective is that, I don't know, like Friday night, nobody cares about Seattle. And then on Saturday, Nirvana releases Smells Like Teen Spirit. And then by Sunday, you know, Seattle is the uh, musical epicenter of the world. (laughs) Did it feel like that to you from inside Seattle? Did it seem so sudden? You know, honestly, um, before even, never mind, bands started playing shows at a place called the... uh, it was just a motorsports. It was an old warehouse with a concrete floor. And all of a sudden, there was like a thousand people at shows. This was like the summer right before Nirvana released Nevermind. Okay. There were all these people at shows that you had never seen before, whereas before, you could almost pick everybody at a show and say, oh, I know that person. Yeah. And... uh Mudhoney, Tad, and Nirvana were kind of driving that. And I think a lot of that had to do with uh, the local stations. You know, I listened to what was KCMU at the time, which turned into KEXP. And for me, that was instrumental on getting the music out there. They played a lot of local stuff. And also, Seattle had a bi-weekly entertainment magazine called The Rocket. About that time, they were putting a lot of bands on their front cover and doing feature stories on them. It kind of uh, grew organically. It was quite a interesting time because it seemed like we were in such a backwater before that. Yeah, so this seemed is is more like a gradual build up then. And well, yeah, once Nevermind hit, though, you know, I remember. I was at a party, I think it was at Dan Peters, the Mudhoney drummer, and Chris Neveselic brought a cassette of the finished mixes and Nevermind, and we're all going, oh man, this is going to be huge. And back then we thought huge was like Jane's addiction, you know? Yeah. But (laughs) then next thing you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit is on MTV. MTV was a a really big driver of the music, uh, not locally, of course, but nationally and and internationally. And all of a sudden, you just couldn't escape Smells Like Teen Spirit. And that's when things just got crazy. What does that look like? Are there record label people swooping in to town or like out-of-town crowds? Showing up? Yeah. Well, any band that had any kind of name had multiple big labels talking to them, whether they signed them or not. Mm-hmm. But almost every one of them, including my band Love Battery, got signed. And uh, unfortunately, most of us just kind of slipped into obscurity because the major labels really didn't have an idea how to promote the underground music, you know. They just wanted the next Nirvana, and they wanted something that was either would catch on or they would just 
drop it. And so mm-hmm. I can really only speak for my own band, Love Battery. I think we probably would have done better to just stay on sub pop and cultivate that uh, grassroots following. And again, going back to your question about Nirvana, I think everybody kind of lost it because everybody thinks, oh, well, we know these guys, we can do that too. So all of a sudden expectations got a lot higher and disappointment (laughs) became a lot more low, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I imagine it was exciting and people were feeling proud of their friends, but also... I imagine there was jealousy in the scene and other feelings like that when certain bands didn't make it. And I can only speak for myself. I kind of would get bitter uh, that we kind of had like just slipped into obscurity. But, you know, honestly, everyone who made it worked really hard. And uh, for the most part, everyone was uh, just really nice who were in the bands before, you know, everybody was just, there was a certain camaraderie. So I still don't feel bitter at all. I actually have gone back to a place of gratitude to get to a, to think about how far we got because most people don't even get as far as Love Battery got. Mm -hmm. But when Nirvana just took off like that, I know that uh, some people were just scratching their heads because, you know, people like Soundgarden were putting out major label records and touring with Guns N' Roses. And everyone thought they were kind of the uh, at the vanguard of breaking it big. And so Nirvana just came from like behind and obviously there was something there you know they spoke to the kids at the time their message really dug deep and it's one of those things you know my the drummer from vaporland was saying yeah man it was lightning in a bottle you know (laughs) you just can't predict it you know whether it's the beatles (laughs) led zeppelin nirvana whatever it just was crazy i know (laughs) i think there's a lot of us who are anxiously awaiting the next lightning in a bottle (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we better keep on going. Sure. We can get through these songs. So uh, let's move on. We're going to hear next from a band called Alice in Chains. As briefly as I can, back in the mid-'80s, Lane Staley was the singer in a glam metal band called Sleaze, and they eventually changed their name to Alice N. Chains. Not uh-huh. N, but N. And uh, from what I understand, Staley's mom was kind of a devout Christian, and he was concerned that if they called it Alice in Chains, she would think there was some kind of female bondage connection there, and she would get upset about that. So uh, Alice Alice in Chains was kind of the compromise. And uh, the band broke up in 86, and Staley joined a funk band and moved in with his friend Jerry Cantrell. Meanwhile, Jerry Cantrell and his friend Sean Kinney were putting together a new band, and they wanted Staley to join as their lead singer. But uh, Staley wouldn't join unless Cantrell also joined Staley's funk band. <laughs> I have no idea what funk band that is. I have not been able to find any record of what they were called, but that band did not survive very long. But Cantrell's new band did, and eventually they settled on the name Alice in Chains, presumably the bondage thing is okay now because Staley's not living with his mom anymore. I guess they officially formed in 1987 and they play, you know, an alternative rock that's a little more on the heavy metal spectrum than uh, some of the other bands. Yeah. And Lane Staley began as the sole lead singer, but by the time we get to 1992, which is where we're talking about, Staley had convinced Cantrell to start sharing in more of the vocal duties. And by this point, they almost are co-singers, I think. And that's one of the really cool things about Alice in Chains is that there's harmony almost continuously, and uh, they have a really interesting harmony sound when they're singing together. You know, I I, I totally see that. I, I remember the fact that Jerry was singing most of the the high parts in the background when Lane was singing lead. That was, again, kind of unique. Uh, if you listen to like a lot of the older recordings coming out of Seattle, there wasn't that much attention to 
vocal harmonies and so forth. So that itself was really unique. And, and Jerry's obviously an amazing singer. <laughs> yeah. And um, I can't confirm this because I haven't like really investigated the songs enough, but I was wondering, like, what is it about those vocal harmonies that sound different? Like when you hear them, you go, oh, this is this sounds different somehow. This is Alice in Chains vocal harmonies. And I read that they have a very frequent use of singing in perfect fourths oh. in their harmonies, whereas I would say like the you know traditional harmonies, you're probably singing a third or a fifth. Yeah. So maybe that's true. I mean, I guess that could that could explain things. But yeah. uh, someone who has you know who wants to dig a little deeper with their music theory can write in and let us know if that's actually correct. And a lot of it has to do with the interplay between the two voices, you know, mm -hmm. when they find the right key to sing in and, and uh, Lane's singing, they've got to find something that sounds good and is within the vocal range of the harmony singer. And a lot of times that will dictate what the harmony singer is singing, whether it's super high or like a fourth or a third or a fifth. And obviously they they stumbled onto something, and especially them bones, those background vocals during the choruses are pretty awesome. Yes. 1992 was a big year for Alice in Chains. Their song Wood was featured on the single soundtrack, and they also released their sophomore album called Dirt, which eventually saw five singles released from it and also eventually went quadruple platinum. Mm. which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And we're going to be listening to a song called Them Bones. This was their first song to chart on the modern rock charts, hitting number 30 in November of 1992. And uh, one interesting thing to listen out for here, this song is written in a fairly unusual time signature for rock songs. This is in 7-8 time. So if you want to count them during the verses, we've got seven beats per measure. The chorus switches back to 4-4, four, four, which is more standard, but let's let's give it a listen. Here's them bones. The first thing that stood out to me was I was pretty amazed at how short the song was. I When I think of Alice in Chains, I tend to think of them as being like kind of slow and sludgy and the songs reaching into like four and a half minutes. Uh -huh. uh, this is so brief and it was it was over before I expected it or wanted it to be over. This is like barely a two and a half minute song. Yeah, that's a flashback to like the 60s where you had to be under three minutes to get radio play. But, you know, there's that old adage in show business, always leave them wanting more. And uh, that song definitely does that. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think this is like, it's a really cool song. I think it's, it's interesting to me how catchy and memorable it is for also feeling dark and moody. You know, usually when I think of catchy yeah. songs, I think of like upbeat, fun, poppy things. And this is, you know, really we're singing about them bones. This is a, a song about mortality and what happens yeah. when we die i suppose maybe slightly tongue-in-cheek i don't know but yeah it is it is the kind of song that'll get stuck in your head pretty fast yeah real briefly we can say what allison chains is up to these days in 2002 lane staley died also of a heroin overdose is that right yeah and it seemed like the end of the band but they eventually picked up a new singer and carried on and continued to have uh, some form of success putting new songs onto the charts, at least onto the rock charts, well after that. so I think uh, Jerry wrote a lot of the songs, so he just wanted to keep writing, and I know they found another lead singer, and mm -hmm. so, you know, good for them that they kept going. It's pretty cool that they were able to soldier on and continue making music. Oh, yeah. We're going to be talking next about a band called Mud Honey. The roots of Mud Honey, I think, lie in a Seattle band called Green River. 
And uh, you mentioned Green River earlier. This was a band that featured some future members of Mother Love Bone and Mm -hmm. uh, some future members of Mud Honey, uh, those being Mark Arm and Steve Turner. Mark Arm and Steve Turner, they uh, picked up drummer Dan Peters, who I also think was in Love Battery uh, at some point. He did a stint for one album. (laughs) Dan's been in... uh... Yeah, so many bands, including Nirvana and yep. oh my goodness, yeah, he, he's he's such an awesome drummer, an incredible energy. Yeah, and uh, they picked up former Melvin's bassist Matt Lukin, and mm. uh, they named their band Mud Honey after a Russ Meyer film. Yeah. They signed to Sub Pop and became what I've heard referred to as Sub Pop's flagship band. No doubt about it. You know, when uh, I actually used to work with Bruce Pabot at Muzak, and uh, he had a column in the Rocket, and that was called Sub Pop. That was really interesting working with Bruce while he was putting out the first releases from Sub Pop, such as Sub Pop 100 and then his Singles Club. So Bruce managed to do his job and start Sub Pop all at the same time. Bruce w- was quite influential with the head of, of the duplication department where we all, that was kind of like the dirty industrial part of Muzak where we actually made the tapes that went out. And uh, he got all these musicians' jobs there. I was working there at the time I was in a band called Room 9 and... Uh, Mark Arm, uh, Chris Pugh, who was in Swallow, Grant Ekman, who was in The Walkabouts, and of course, uh, Tad, who was later became Tad. Tad is a great drummer. He was amazing. And uh, I used to jam with him and Kurt Danielson. I wanted to make a, a band with those guys, but by that time, Tad had already started making records for sub pop and uh mm-hmm. so i kept searching for members and that eventually turned into love battery yeah so all all these guys you're mentioning they're all working for uh for muzak yeah so, and and of course yeah. you know bruce pavitt is working with those guys as he develops sub pop you know Hmm. yeah one thing about Sub Pop that was really unique was Bruce. He looked to Motown as an example of a label that was internationally successful, but totally had the flavor of it, the hometown it was in. You know, it was definitely the Detroit right, yeah. soul sound, and almost all the artists were from the Detroit area. It's funny because he he found that sound. I remember he told me once he went to a party at my house, and at the time Charles Peterson had moved in, and Charles had all these uh, huge prints of his his photos on the walls of, you know, he was best friends with Mark Arm, and so a lot of them were Green River, and uh, and Bruce told me later, you know, that's where I got the the idea for the image and the sound of Sub Pop. The sound was that Green River sound, and the image was Charles's photos. And obviously, it was an amazing combination. Well, I'm glad you're bringing up Bruce Pavitt because we can't really tell the future. Like, if we imagine a world without Bruce Pavitt and and no Sub Pop, like oh, we yeah. don't really know what would happen. But I think it's easy to guess that things would not have been quite the same and Seattle would not have blown up in quite the way it did without him. And and I guess, again, we got to include Jonathan Poneman in there. Bruce may have started the label while he was working at Muzak, but when Jonathan came along, you know, I think it was Jonathan that actually wanted to sign Nirvana. And I believe it was Jonathan who actually signed, wanted to sign Love Battery also. Bruce was really into the his vision, and uh, I think Jonathan brought a little more variety to the sub pop catalog. Yeah, 
So I guess uh, Mudhoney's been putting out some stuff for Sub Pop in 1991. They were reportedly given $20,000 to record a song for the single soundtrack. And <laughs> I heard that they recorded the song Overblown for $164 sure. and pocketed the rest. So, uh, you know. Mudhoney uh, are like a, a textbook case of frugality, you know, for instance, when they signed to a major, they recorded their major label album, just like they recorded all the sub-pop records. The label gave them all this money, and they ended up putting down payments on houses. So, you know, uh-huh. and, and in that way, they kept their lo-fi indie band image, even on the major label. And, uh, you know, Mudhoney still is doing that with uh, even their later releases on Sub Pop in the 2000s. You know, they've kept that garage sound and that ethos, and uh, they're still touring and putting out new albums. And, I, you know, hats off to them because very few bands ever recovered from their uh, major label outing. Absolutely. So... In 1992, Mudhoney released their third album called Piece of Cake. I guess you could say at the height of grunge mania, but uh, it didn't sell particularly well. And, um, you know, I I don't know if that mattered to them too much. (laughs) As you said, they uh, kept doing their thing, and uh, major label or not, it seems like Mudhoney's Mudhoney, and they want to play, and they want to make their music like they want to make their music. So, yeah. But we're going to hear a song called Suck You Dry. This was released as a single and reached number 23 on the modern rock charts in November You know, I I think of uh, bands nowadays like Guided by Voices and so forth that they have that kind of lo-fi, keeping it real sound. And as a result, they still draw big crowds, you know, because they're constantly putting out great music. And uh, they've always stuck to their guns. And I think Mudhoney is one of those bands. You know, also... Green River already kind of had a reputation around town, and uh, Stone and, and Jeff were kind of like already looking forward to something different. But when they broke up, Mudhoney definitely became Sub Pop's main band, and they were like the first ones to get, uh, you know, attention in England. And I think they were on the cover of NME or something, which actually that was Sub Pop's plan to to kind of go through England, get a hype there, and then it translated into a quite a grassroots swell in the U.S. Yeah. And Sucky Dry is a very, uh, in the mud honey uh, template, you know. Right. It's uh, pretty cool. Yeah. I think it's pretty cool, too. I totally agree. I think mud honey has a good sound, and I, you know, I like the kind of lo-fi-ish approach to what they're doing. But... It's a little surprising to me that this band was considered such an important band in Seattle because I feel like Mudhoney does not have the interest in pop sensibilities that a lot of the other bands have. You know, whereas Nirvana has some similarities musically, I think, to Mudhoney, they, especially once we get to Nevermind, like they were much more interested in kind of sing along type songs or the kind of like sticky melodies that sound good on the radio. So, yeah, I don't see that as much with Mud Honey. And then, of course, you know, not to disparage Mark Arm, but a few of these these bands from Seattle, I would say that they had a charismatic, photo shoot-ready heartthrob lead singers. And, you know, Mark Arm, (laughs) he's a fine-looking dude, but he's not not like the the heartthrob that some of these other guys are. So... um, No... It was no Chris Cornell. Uh, You know, honestly, uh, 
in the early days of of Soundgarden, you know, uh, Chris was always taking off his shirt and stuff, and that was uh-huh. that was looked on like with some humor, actually, you know. Yeah. But uh, what can you say? You know, the proof is in the in the popularity of how huge they got. So he was doing something right. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go on to the fourth band. We're going to hear from a band called Screaming Trees. This band was formed in Ellensburg, Washington. Yeah, that's basically over the the mountains, just on the other side of the Cascade Range. I remember actually when I was in Room 9, I was in a, a line for for REM at, at the Paramount, um, one of their early albums, and Mark Pickerel, who was the drummer of uh, the Screaming Trees at that time, had seen us play, and um, he came up to us. He goes, oh, yeah, you guys are Room 9, right? Well, I'm in a band called the Screaming Trees, and he gave me the copy of what was their demo. And I remember I really dug it, and uh, I think I asked them to come to Seattle to play with Room 9, by the time they did come to Seattle, they were bigger than, than my band. But there has been a kind of a real symbiotic relationship between Love Battery and the Screaming Trees. We actually played at uh, Lee Connor's wedding. <laughs> and uh, when we played with them, we did some mini tours with them around the Northwest. That was just crazy. Uh, including a riot in in Yakima that uh, the kids started pulling out the chairs. There were the you know they were bolted to the floor, but somehow the chairs started getting tossed around. And wow, it was nuts. Do you know what set that off? Well, you know this was after Nirvana, and and the Trees I'm pretty sure had just released. It was part of their Sweet Oblivion tour, mm-hmm. and. Um, it was just the kids were starved. They had been reading about all this music and probably hearing about it, of course, on MTV or, or the magazines. And here was a representation of it coming to their town. Plus the trees, I think, were legends because they were kind of local. Uh, Ellensburg is just, I think, 20 miles from Yakima. And uh, the kids just went nuts because they were starved. Wow. That was really crazy. The uh, what happened is the kids started jumping on stage and stuff, and, um, and and stage diving. And the guy who worked at the theater tried to lower the orchestra pit, which was right in front of the stage, to keep people from jumping on the stage. Instead, it kind of set off this chain reaction. Like the trees got through like three songs or something and had to leave. It was pretty crazy. Wow. I don't think they ever had rock shows at that theater after that. <laughs> that's nuts. Yeah, that's like that's like Beatlemania for the oh, trees. Oh, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I saw that with Nirvana, too, even before Nevermind. There was something there, you know? Yeah, that's, know, that's exciting. The Screaming Trees uh, are, because they formed in 85, they had uh, had time to put out more albums than a lot of these other bands. So by the time we get to 1992, Screaming Trees are on their sixth studio album, Sweet mm-hmm. Oblivion. And this became their biggest selling album. Although maybe not as big selling as one might expect. The song we're going to listen to is Nearly Lost You. And I've heard that because it was included on the single soundtrack, there's feelings that Sweet Oblivion didn't sell quite as well as it could have because a lot of people had already got their Nearly Lost You from the single soundtrack and didn't feel like picking up the album. That's their loss. I love the trees, and uh, I still see Van, who wrote I Nearly Lost You. That song is just catchy as hell, and uh, it's one of those great moments in Seattle rock, I feel. Like I said, I have a real affinity for the trees because they were kind of doing that that psychedelic thing that Love Battery was doing. And you could tell that we probably grew up listening to the same music. And mm-hmm. it, uh, I always enjoyed their songwriting, too. I read an interview with some of the band members, and Van Connor said that the song was, uh, I think, more or less about you know having some kind of 
LSD experience or <laughs> something about tripping out and, and nearly losing your mind. Um, <laughs> the singer, singer Mark Lanigan said that this song was formed with the intention of being a single as requested by their record label. So it's interesting to keep in mind because, yeah, I think it, it does succeed as a, as a single and something that's going to catch on and be popular, but it also doesn't sound like they really went out of their way to change their sound. And so, absolutely, I don't know, it's, it's one of those songs that succeeds because it still feels true to the band while also containing those elements that could lead to it becoming popular. Yeah. <laughs> so let's listen to it. Here's uh, I Nearly Lost You, Screaming Trees. Yeah, that's I, those guys are so good. Uh, the the psychedelic elements and and Lanigan's vocals, his whiskey soaked voice, it just uh, is quite a combination. It makes for a really unique sound, especially in the Seattle genre. You know, I've heard that Mark Lanigan and Kurt Cobain had teamed up at some point prior to this, and they were interested in doing. Uh, I think it was a covers album of Lead Belly songs or something. Oh, and yeah. I don't think it got very far, but it's always interesting to think about what could have been. And, if, yeah. of course, you know, Kurt's interest in Lead Belly uh, was displayed in the MTV Unplugged album where, where he covered one of those songs. Mark Lanigan had actually done that song, The Pines, I think on his first solo album for Sub Pop. So I think that was a direct influence of Mark. He was really into kind of rootsy, folky music. I would sometimes go over to his apartment and he'd be playing something that I totally was unfamiliar with. You know, so I think that was Mark Lanigan's influence on Kurt. Yeah, that's always interesting when people are into music that uh, I guess is not obvious from listening to the music that they make, but... You know, maybe it's in there somewhere. Yeah. What are the Screaming Trees up to these days? Do you know? Are they... Well, you know, Lanigan is uh, doing his solo stuff. Last I heard, he he moved to somewhere in Ireland. I don't know where. Lee, who did most of the songwriting, especially in the early days, he, he still puts out his stuff that I see on Facebook all the time. And he's always posting in the Screaming Trees fan club. And I know Van is is uh, just jamming with people and working full time. Yeah. And and Mark Pickerell, who is the original drummer, is he's got a, a band called Mark Pickerell and the Peyote Three. I saw him about three weeks ago. Okay. Because a band I'm playing in called Purple Strange played with them. That's almost rootsy country type stuff. And Barrett Martin, the the drummer for the trees who played on Sweet Oblivion has become kind of a world music aficionado. He, uh, for a while there, he traveled around all over the world trying to find interesting artists to record. And I know he spends a lot of time in South America, and uh, he actually brought a uh, an artist from South America. I can't remember his name, but th- he had Jack record it and i think barrett produced it jack and dino and they actually won a grammy for that which was pretty amazing but uh, barrett had just released a book about his adventures with you know recording all these international artists and just last week he did um you know he's just an amazing musician he's really grown a lot because of his influences and he was uh sitting in with the the band that that backs seth meyer's late night show so mm-hmm. he's very involved but in in different ways yeah so they uh 
the trees are, you know, still around in different incarnations. <laughs> right. I think I just saw that they officially broke up in 2000, but it sounds like the various members are still around doing things. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that just about covers all the bands we're going to talk about. But before we go, you know, we listened to an early Love Battery song at the beginning of the episode. I thought it might be fun to check out what Love Battery was up to in 1992. That's the year that Sub Pop released Love Battery's album Day Glow, as well as a re-release of the Between the Eyes single. So 92 was a big year for Love Battery, I gotta say, because that's when we were officially a Sub Pop band. And Mm -hmm. uh, I remember going out on tour after we released Day Glow, and uh, all of a sudden we were packing out the clubs, you know, across the country. So that was really exciting. 1992 was a really exciting year for Love Battery. Yeah. Like I said, we always uh, had our friends in the other bands, and uh, even the, the guys who were making it huge back then were quite complimentary to us and it was a lot of fun i remember you know there weren't that many places to play in seattle even then but there were more than there were in the late 80s and uh i remember i couldn't pay for a drink at any place i went many of the bars i I hung out in, you know, which was actually very dangerous because I ended up drinking quite a bit. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, you know, for someone in their 20s, uh, it was it was a, like a little taste of rock stardom. It was it was kind of fun. Yeah, I'll bet. OK, well, here's the lead off track from the 1992 Love Battery album Dayglow. The song is called Out of Focus. I like that one too. And in fact, you know what? I like this whole album. I, I really do. Uh, I've, I've listened to it quite a few times and uh, I think it's a really great album. I think it's an album that deserves to be better known. And uh, I'm still trying to track down a CD copy. It's one of those CDs that goes for like 70 bucks on eBay. Oh, I know. Isn't that crazy? We're actually talking to Jackpot Records, who's out of uh, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. And... Uh, They've already re-released like some Green River and The Wipers, a lot of great re-releases on album. And they're planning on doing a special run of Dayglow, uh, I think a thousand pressings Oh wow! in the near future. We are just kind of in the phase of working that out. Well, good. Yeah. Definitely deserves to, to see a re-release. Can we direct our listeners anywhere if they want to hear... Any of your music or any of your new projects or anything? I know we're on Amazon Music and Spotify, I believe, I heard, Mm -hmm. and iTunes. So I think you can look us up there and get most of the catalog. And uh, I've been playing in bands such as Down With People and Vaporland, which was... uh, you know, we had Garrett from the Fluid on drums, uh, Kurt Danielson from Tad on bass, me and Kevin from Love Battery, and uh, Katie Scarberry, who's now my wife. She was also on vocals, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and right now, I'm playing in a band called Purple Strange, which has a, a CD out. And that includes uh, Kurt Danielson on bass from Tad, Jack and Dino, producer, recorder extraordinaire, and uh, Jared Stroud, who's the lead singer, and uh, oh, Vern Vandenberg, who's our drummer. And that's been a really cool experience because we actually recorded those songs as we worked them out. And uh, 
Jack did an amazing job on on the production and uh, the CD we put out was really good. So, you know, we're planning, I think we'll play a few more shows and trying to write more music for that band and got my, uh, you know, pokers and a lot of fires. And I think uh, Down With People, we're going to get together this weekend to practice for the first time since the pandemic. And I think we may try to record something with Jack in the next few months. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So I'm trying to keep busy musically. Great. I think we've covered a lot of stuff, but is there anything that we failed to mention at any point that you wanted to bring up? Any any shout-outs? Everybody I've talked about, I have the most respect for all these bands. And uh, I just got to say thank you to everybody who came to see a Love Battery show or bought one of our CDs or records, you know. Um very grateful for that you know at at the time i maybe thought we weren't as big as we should have been in my mind but i look back and i'm going no that was a great time you know yeah the the 90s especially the early 90s 92 is when i was i finally able to quit my job and actually made a living off of the music that was huge yeah a lot of people don't get that opportunity so for me I can look back on that and uh, think of it fondly. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, if anyone wants to get in contact with me, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. If anyone wants to hear more of Ron Nine's music, and I think all of you should, uh, you know where to find it, all over the internet. Check out any of uh, the various bands we've mentioned. But, uh, you know, maybe start with Love Battery, because after all, this is 1992 that we're talking about today. And, uh, you know, a big thanks to you, Ron. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time, and uh, I had a blast. Thanks, Will. Thank you so much for asking me. I appreciate uh, the interest. Yeah, of course. And if I'm in Portland, I'll be sure to let you know, you know, especially if we're playing... That'd be great. Yeah, I would, I'd love to see uh, a show from you. That'd be very cool. Yeah. Well, I'd love to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll catch all you listeners next time. Have a good one. Bye. Bye, everybody.